Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to harvestwarrensburg.com. Well, we've been, we've been talking about our, our core value of, of family. I kind of just jump right in this morning. We've got limited time, and I'm probably going to take you a little bit long because I've just got a lot to cover. So I hope to not dilly-dally or take any rabbit trails. You know, we'll just jump right in. The core value of a family we've been wrestling with, and, and in this core, van, uh, this core uh, value, we've discovered that this is the context through which God always intended the process of discipline to unfold, Right? We've been talking about that. Like it's within family, it's within intimacy, it's within the context of deep relationships that it actually works because people have a vetted uh, interest in being able to sow into you, you know, and you have an interest in actually receiving from them. And so it actually works in this context. It's in this context that we actually ward against offense and a rebuke or the, the discipline of coming alongside with the word actually bears good fruit. Now, Jesus is generous, so he allows us to have some fruit in other places as well. But this is the, the primary context. And, and we've begun so far in the series to dissect 1 Corinthians 5. I, I submit this uh, passage of Scripture to you as the, the really the, the only passage that, that deals primarily with a, uh, a leader in the body of Christ uh, issuing some kind of discipline on an individual within the context of a church. It's the only scripture that I know of like that. Uh, many will reference Matthew 18. That's largely personal in nature. If a brother has offended you, you know, if they've sinned against you, that's personal, that's one-on-one. The church only gets involved towards the latter stages of that process. You know, and so, so we have to kind of jump and we've begun to, to dissect this, but we're talking about, again, the context of family. And what I want you to see this morning as we get started is that the Apostle Paul, uh, being the founder of the church of Corinth, you understand he actually planted the church, right? You know, so he has a unique position uh, in, in this church. Uh, uh, he has a, a unique interest in seeing them succeed, not that he would wish for any church to fail. You know, as the founder of the church, the Apostle Paul, before he ever issues a rebuke to them in the, chap- in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, before he ever even gets there, over and over again, he reaffirms his father's heart towards them. Did you know that? I would, I would suggest to you, last week we talked about some of the gaps that exist as we started out our journey in 1 Corinthians 5, kind of going, ah, this is strange, I, I don't understand, it seems contradictory in how Holy Spirit is actually inviting us into to partnership, inviting us to go a little bit deeper in the discovery anytime we see something that looks like a supposed contradiction. I want to submit to you this morning, what is so often overlooked is this piece that we're introducing this morning. What's so often overlooked is this reality that the Apostle Paul was coming in the context of family. And again, uh, in the preceding chapters, he reaffirms that. Let's look at a couple of those verses. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. You see, this isn't some random, uninvested, top-down leader who's coming in to rebuke the church of Corinthians. He's, he's the founder of the church, and he's literally laid his life down for her. Do you, do you get that? 
Like he is, he is in love with these people. He, ha, like he has laid his life down. We can see the description of the, the, the life of the Apostle Paul, you know, being in the deep and doing all these, these like horrific experiences that he have and the pursuit of the gospel, the planting of the churches and the expansion of the kingdom. Like this, the Apostle Paul, he loves this church. He's largely laid down his life for her. He's not a random, uninvested leader. But we also see here that he has absolutely no desire to punish them. He's coming, reaffirming his fatherhood and reaffirming the fact that he's coming in gentleness and in love. It's like, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to shame you. I don't want to beat you up. I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm not going to come to punish you. I'm coming as a father. What's a father do? A father disciplines. What's discipline? Discipline is coming alongside as a coach to admonish, to speak into, to correct in the place of love, motivated by love uh, with the intent to restore such a one, right? That's what we've been talking about in this series. And again, as we start out, we see the Apostle Paul following that very same pattern, despite the, perhaps, uh, how do I want to say, despite the harsh sense in which we could take 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if we took it in isolation. Kind of like, oh, Apostle Paul's being kind of, kind of harsh here, but he's prefaced anything that we get there with this fatherly heart of love that we're seeing unfold. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 21, just a little bit further down the road. It says, What do you desire then? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? See, he's, he's not saying, hey, t- take a pick. Which, hey, uh, you want me to come with a rod? Another side? No, he's saying, look, like, you guys are, you guys are like, there's some resistance here in the church. He, and, and he's kind of, he's admonishing them even in this kind of saying, I don't want to come to you with a rod. I, 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 my heart's desire, and, and by the way, also what I wrote to all the other church leaders in the epistles to do is to come to you in love and to come to you in gentleness. He's like, obviously, that's the choice. See, he's building this up for us. Even as we fast forward to 2 Corinthians, it's a little, uh, a little bit beyond where we uh, presently are in our study. You know, but we see the exact same thing here, and, and similarly under a measure of pushback. How many of you know the Apostle Paul was challenged in many cases in his leadership? He had challenging people. You know, uh, within the context of these churches, people who were like, mm, I don't know about this guy. And, and here again, even in, in the face of pushback, he begins, he says, now I, Paul, myself, I urge you by, the me- by meekness and gentleness, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now notice again, he's not coming with a rod, <laughs> even though he's facing opposition. It says he's, he's urging them by, the, by meekness, that's power, uh, that's under authority, and, and, and the gentleness of Christ. I, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we have walked according to the flesh. See, he's being accused here. But take special notice He's coming in the spirit of, of gentleness, but, but what he's proposing is, he's saying, listen, I, I know that I might be coming off a little bit harsh in my letters. I, I, I know that you could be receiving, like it's a, it's a harsh rebuke. I, I, I understand that, but, but what, what I'm really hoping that you get is that as I propose these things in letter form, that you'll get it, and I won't have to have a face-to-face with you like that. See, so he's coming in love and he's coming in gentleness. This is a man who has no desire to bring a rod against the church. 
Meekness, gentleness, love, restoration is in mind. All of the things that we've been talking about, he actually has prefaced anything he says in 1 Corinthians 5 with all of these attributes. He is, I want to submit to you, walking in all of the things that we've been talking about. That's why we have to take a second look and excavate these truths out of there. Now, this is, I'll just throw this out there. This is how I have often approached this church or my leadership in this church. You know, sometimes people get a little bit scared of me because they see me in the pulpit and they think, oh my gosh, like I would never want to be one-on-one with that guy. He, you know, he's, like, he's just too, he's too intense and not that I can't be one-on-one when, when needed, but I, I, I've always taken this scripture to heart and I thought, man, if I can just be bold and direct from the stage, then you'll get it, you'll receive it. It'll, the word will transform your heart so that I don't have to come and have a face-to-face. You know, I don't want to have to have those kinds of confrontations with anyone. So I would much rather you get it when I preach it from the stage. Receive it. Let it transform your hearts. And I believe, in fact, that it's a regular declaration of mine that when I speak, that power is released that transforms lives. That's a regular declaration, but it's consistent because what I'm speaking is the Word of God, and the Word of God has the power to transform your life. And so here I am being bold and intense and crazy and dancing all over the the stage out of love for you, hoping to God that you get it and your lives get turned around and transformed and set on course with His plumb line so that when we're one-on-one in that space, I don't have to rebuke you. So I think that's the pattern. I think that's the pattern that we see in Scripture. Again, we're talking about church discipline within the context of family here. Is this making sense so far? What we're not seeing from the Apostle Paul is some kind of domineering, you know, top-down, controlling punishment model. That's, that's not what we're reading And it's absolutely critical that we have to understand that context before we jump in and try to make a doctrine out of 1 Corinthians 5. See, so often what I see is that we take take that fifth chapter in isolation and we kind of go, well, you know, the Apostle Paul was, was, was really strong and was really, was really harsh against these guys, and thus we have license to do the same. And we've done, we've extracted it out of its natural habitat. We've extracted it out of its context, and we're getting it completely wrong, especially when you see the preceding chapters prefacing everything he's about to say that appears to be harsh with, I'm your father. I've laid down my life for you. We have to get that as we jump in. Now, last week we got to cover the first three verses. I hope to cover the rest. We're going to skip a few verses to do that this morning. Well, we got to cover the first three verses. As I noted just a second ago, uh, we talked, or we intro- I introduced the reality that there are some gaps. There's a, a, a missing letter. The Apostle Paul is, in many cases, a- addressing questions and or circumstances that he was privileged to, you know, and we don't have some of that information. But again, I want to reiterate, I think some of the gaps that are often uh, seen in this text are the fact that he is coming as a father, but everybody seems to miss it. Even though it's their plane in the text, I think that's one of the big gaps that we find as we approach 1 Corinthians 5. You know, again, he's not a top-down dictator coming in with his rod looking to beat up the church. He's a meek father coming with restoration and mind, having already laid down his life for this bride. He's given everything for her. He's coming in meekness, and he's coming in love. So there's our preface. We're going to jump right into 
verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. <clears throat> he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I remind you just for a second before we jump in there. How do you like that I interrupt myself? I can interrupt me all I want. You just don't interrupt me. That's, you know. <laughs> We talked about how verse 3 kind of starts with this, point, this, with this portion of the scripture where you're like, okay, I don't understand. Paul's starting to say some weird stuff. So just a reminder, uh, we're still there in that when we jump into verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What in the world is happening here? I mean, what does it mean even to turn somebody over to Satan? And is that legal? Like, can we do that? You know? and, and, and here's the other part of it. Like, the, the question that I think it brings to mind for me is, and is this punishment? But we're talking about punishment versus discipline, right? And, and now the Apostle Paul is like, listen, I've already judged this dude. Like, he is, if you remember, like, he is in some crazy sin. Even the world thinks this guy is messed up. Right? I've already judged this guy. I'm turning him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, if that doesn't sound like punishment, I don't know, I don't know what does. But I don't think it is. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? I'm told that when I bring up these things, I've been told several times, they're like, you know when you say, do you know that story? I've been told many times, they don't know the story. So I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a snapshot. The, the prodigal son, they were, from all intents and purposes, what I can gather to be a fairly wealthy farming family. You know, two sons, the youngest of the two, goes to the father and he says, hey, father, can I have my inheritance early? So anybody who can cash out that inheritance early, I suppose, must be rather wealthy, right? Wouldn't you think? So he cashes out the inheritance early, which means this kid now has a lump sum of money. Unfortunately, he takes that lump sum of money. He goes into town, makes a bunch of friends with his money, and ultimately the Bible seems to indicate he squanders it. And then a famine comes. In the midst of this famine, he finds, oh my goodness, I haven't prepared for my future. I don't have any money. And we find in the story that he ends up actually in squalor. Uh, He begins to work for another farmer, a pig farm, and he's literally starving to death. And in this low state, he actually begins to share the pig slop with the pigs that he's tending to. Remember the story, those of you who do know what I'm talking about. So the question that I want to pose in regard to the prodigal son is, was the father disciplining this younger son through those circumstances? Excuse me, let me say it again a different way. Was he punishing him? Was he punishing him through those circumstances? No, he wasn't. Father God, excuse me, <laughs> although it's him too. You know, the father in this scenario didn't have anything to do with the circumstances that unfolded for that young man. He was experiencing the natural consequences of his sinful actions. You understand that so far? He made his own bed. He was experiencing you know, the fruit of his own labor. The father had absolutely nothing to do with that. Now, let's put that upon our natural context. When we cho- choose to willingly, as Christians, when we choose to willingly partner with sin in our lives, it's as if we have taken a physical step 
out of the protection and the covering of God's house. Remember, the prodigal left his father's house, the protection, the covering, the financial covering, all those things. He literally physically left the father's house. When you and I sin as believers, we leave the Father's protection. We are actually, by, by nature, the fact that we are choosing sin and not Him, we are literally choosing to take a step out. And when we do that, we expose ourselves to the buffeting of the enemy. So there's protection. You have no idea how much protection you have. There's so much that's happening in the unseen realm. Angels that God is sending to, to stop this from happening, to guard you from that, to, to keep you from meeting with that one person who was going to be discouraging with you that day. You have absolutely no idea how much protection is happening. Don't buy that stock. Don't, don't do this. Uh, this is a season when you need to save your money, and maybe you think that's you speaking to you. I can submit to you, it's the protection, it's the hand of God because you're in his house. And we just, there's so much of it that we don't see. It's God's love literally behind the scenes and he doesn't seem to even need to get the credit for it. Working and working everything on our behalf, working it all for good. He's behind the scenes doing all that. Well, what happens when we take an intentional step into sin and outside of that covering? Like all of a sudden we're exposed and, and, and we're exposed to the enemy, and there's like a chink in our armor, and the, the enemy gets to come in and begin to buffet us. That's the natural consequence of our actions. What we're seeing is, like, when I step out of his covering, that's a choice that I'm making. He's not punishing me. Do you see the difference? It's the natural consequences of me having stepped outside of his house, just the same way that we see with the prodigal son story. Right, The prodigal son naturally steps outside of the covering of the father and he begins to get buffeted by life. So how then am I relating this back to the sinful believer in Corinth? How is it that we're talking about you know, being turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What, like, how am I relating that to natural consequences? What the Apostle Paul, in fact, is saying is he's being removed and he's being brought out from within the covering of God and from the house of God. Well, how's that not punishment? Think about it like this. Consider your life or this church, think of it like a castle, and you can throw that picture on the board if you like. You know, a castle, we all know from history, has a wall all the way around it. Is that right? Now, we can, like, in the form of a, of a self-protective mechanism, we can lie to ourselves and say that we are putting in boundaries in our life by erecting a clear wall all the way around our life with absolutely no access to the people that are around us, Right? Uh, this is not what a boundary actually looks like. It's just a self-protective mechanism to keep you from getting hurt again. And it's not biblical, and it's not appropriate. What, what, we're, what we're seeing actually happen in the church of Corinth through the hand of the Apostle Paul is the setting of boundaries. How many of you know we set boundaries around the things that we love to protect the things that we love? What does a shepherd do with his sheep? He sets a boundary around them to protect them from those who may be hurting them, from wolves and foxes and all kinds of other things that would otherwise be threats. But a boundary, yeah, a boundary where it differs from what I described before, the wall that we erect in our hearts when we're hurt and we don't want to get hurt again, is, is what you see there. You can see where I've got the red arrow. 
It was much more red on my screen, just so you know. But you know, in, any castle has an entrance point, doesn't it? There's actually a drawbridge. There's a place, you know, and, and anybody who is scaling the back wall, right, that's a robber, that's a thief. That's somebody who's out to do harm, which is why we're a Second Amendment state and he doesn't get to go home. There is a place to go that's called the front door. There's actually a designated place. So when the Apostle Paul sets out these boundaries, he's not actually releasing punishment. It's a natural consequence of the man's actions. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that this individual is in the church and he's hurting people. And the Apostle Paul is a shepherd of that place by extension, can't allow one individual to continue to hurt all of those other people. So the natural consequences are that you have to actually be removed from their midst. You can't continue to hurt people. But listen, we're not creating a, bound, a boundary that you can't scale or get in. We're just simply saying, you need to go through the front door. What's the front door? Genuine repentance. What's genuine repentance? That's, you need to recognize before God that you're hurting people. You know, and, and you need to actually change your thinking. We're going to give you an opportunity here to do what's right. If you don't want to do what's right, then, then, you can, you, then you can't get in because we're not going to allow you to continue to come in and hurt people here. Right? But if you do what is right through repentance, well, there's the gateway. You know? So, so you, you're not punishing them. You're setting boundaries around those things that you love and want to see protected. Does that make sense so far? This is why. It all makes sense. This is why the Apostle Paul says in the next verse, verse 6. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? I, I want you to consider this because I think that something gets lost in this as well. What kind of leaven would you propose would have the power to leaven the whole lump? Leaven is sin. The lump is the church. What kind of leaven, what kind of sin do you think has the ability to leaven the whole lump? Is it, is, it, uh, is it any sin? Does any sin have the ability to, to leaven us? Is it, a, is it a specific kind of sin? Are there certain things that you, you could do here that would leaven the whole body? You know, and not other things. Some things are like, it's like, it's not okay, but it's not going to leaven you. But then other things like, and then what are those things, right? Uh, in the context here, it's talking specifically in 1 Corinthians 5 about sexual sin. Uh, is sexual sin the one thing that can leaven the whole body, is that, what, is that the deal? So that's a special emphasis? Is that the one sin that has the ability to corrupt you? You know, See, if, we're, if we throw a blanket out and we say, well, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, you know, so any sin has the, has the ability here to destroy this environment and basically drag people off to hell. Uh, if, if that's our position, we're, we're really in trouble, folks. Because there's an awful lot of sin represented out there in those seats and up here on this stage. Right? I mean, we would be better off to go live in a cave someplace, become monks, you know, and take on a vow of silence because the moment you open up your mouth, especially after you've been silent for a while, you may not like what comes out of there. See, we, 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 would, be, we, would, be in, we would be in trouble <laughs> if, it's, if it's any sin in the church that, that leavens the whole lump or brings destruction or, or, or basically brings corruption to everybody in the body, man, we are, we, are really, we are really in trouble. 
I think we have to remember, and I just want to make sure I'm on my pathway here, because it's important I get this pathway appropriate or right according to my notes, because my notes are vastly superior and written with perfection. <laughs> I do want to say this. I think this is important, and also the need for good notes. And I'm, not, I'm also not trying to minimize sin by saying, well, you should just go live in a cave then because we all have sin here, you know? I, I, I want to emphasize, I'm, I'm not trying to create a, a license for sin. I think Paul addresses some of those things in the book of Romans. You know, we're not trying to create a license to sin. I'm not trying to say, well, it's all good. We're all, we're all just sinners. Actually, we're not sinners. We're saints. Like Jesus actually laid down his life. He paid a price so that we could actually be redeemed, clothed in his righteousness, born again as a new creation with a new bloodline. No longer sinners, but saints. That thing is not our slave master anymore. I'm not trying even for a second to minimize that reality. And I think so often we do, and we need to take pause and survey of our lives even to kind of go, God, I don't want to dishonor you. I don't want to dishonor the work of the cross. I, I want to submit myself to righteousness. I want to submit myself to holiness. So we're not, we're not minimizing the work of the cross. We're, we're not trying to, to paint a picture that's, that's untrue, that, that we're all just sinners, so what's it matter anyways? No, listen, like, like there's, a, there's a huge problem if we still have sin running rampant in our lives. In fact, I would submit to you there's, there are two solutions, not solutions, but there are, uh, it would be indicative of two things in your life. Either, number one, you're not even saved at all. I think that's pretty worthy of you looking in the mirror and asking the question, Lord Jesus, do I even know you? if these things are continuing to run in your life. And the second is that you have an identity crisis. You still think that you're just a lowly worm, filthy sinner, and sinner's sin, so that's what you're going to continue to do. And you haven't understood the scriptures where he said you were born again a new creation, that you're no longer a slave to sin. You have an identity crisis, but there is a space where it makes sense for us to actually take a moment and go, Jesus, which one is it? And the, next, the following verses, the Apostle Paul largely addresses this by suggesting we need to sweep out the house. It's a, he's talking about the, the, the practice right before the Passover where they would sweep out all the dirt and get rid of all of the leaven. He's applying that to our lives, saying like there, there might be a place here where you need to actually take a look and figure out, Lord, do I even know you? Or why does this thing continue to happen in my life? Sweep that stuff out of there because Jesus is worthy of it. Jesus is worthy of your pursuit of righteousness. He's worthy of your pursuit of holiness. We're not, again, not even for a second trying to minimize this reality. We're not trying to dishonor God. And obviously, we're called to live in the place of community and not in a cave. In fact, God specifically admonishes us, do not forsake assembling together. That's why all those people on social media that say, well, I've got Jesus. I just reject that. Uh, what do they call that? Uh, something religion? formal religion or something. They're like, well, I got Jesus. I just don't come to church. I just reject all of that stuff. Well, you reject the words of Christ. So what are you going to do with that? He literally commands us not to forsake assembling together. We have to do this. I'm going to submit to you the only sin that can leaven a church body is this. I'm going to read this. A sin that is promoted, a sin that is celebrated, that is tolerated, or a sin that is released by an unrepentant leader. I want to read that again. The only sin that can leaven a body is one that's promoted, one that's celebrated, one that's tolerated, or one that's released by an unrepentant leader. We talked a little bit about that, I think, last week. I want you to think about gossip just for a second. 
if the culture at harvest is not prone to gossip, then when someone comes in who doesn't understand that culture, you know, and they begin to gossip to you, you as a people, you as a culture, you'll nip it pretty quick. Okay? So does gossip then have the ability to leaven this body? No. Gossip doesn't have the ability to leaven the body because the culture's already been established. You guys would nip it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have the ability to grow in this place. Right? Uh, years ago, years ago when I was first saved, I had some erroneous beliefs, particularly and ironically given the content, you know, uh, in regard to uh, sexual promiscuity. When I was first saved, I didn't come from a Christian background. I didn't know what the Bible had to say about it. But you know what? I was also in a body of believers. Now, I guess the, the question is, do you think that I leavened them or that they leavened me? See, we had conversations, and I, and I came in and said, well, I just think as long as you love a gal, that it's probably okay to do all those things. And those believers that were around me said, au contraire, the Word of God has something very different to say about that. That's called fornication. That's sexual immorality. God has a lot to say about that. No, that's not right at all. And so we began to excavate the Scriptures. And the voice of the people in the body of Christ around me, coupled with the truth of Scriptures, actually leavened me. Not the other way around. See, we, we can't forget what testament we live in. Now, remember, in, in the Old Testament, it, it, leprosy, for example, represented sin. Did you know that? It was a, like we have things that are a type of Christ. Leprosy would be like a type of sin. It would be an example of what it looks like. Uh, largely, if you've ever seen anybody, I've been in leper colonies or leper camps myself when I was in India. If you've ever seen this thing, it dominates somebody physically and it literally like, it's like an external cancer that begins to eat them away. Well, what is sin? Sin does that on the inside of you. It's a cancer on the inside of you that literally begins to devour. It begins to melt you from the inside out. Maybe not everybody sees it, but it is killing you. In the Old Testament, if you got around leprosy at all, you were considered unclean. And certainly if you had leprosy, you were unclean, which largely meant that you were of no use to God or any service to man. And so you had to retreat. You had to get out of there. They had this whole process prescribed for what you do with leprosy. Now, fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. The guy with leprosy shows up. And, and Jesus walks right up to him. Just puts his hand right on him. We're talking about sinless Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, the priest, the rabbi. Jesus touches him. Was Jesus rendered unclean in that moment? Or was the leper rendered clean? The leper was rendered unclean. You see, you and I now, we get to go in the name of Jesus in the same power and the same authority, extending our hands and seeing the lepers set free and cleansed. They don't have the ability to leaven me. I and the kingdom leaven, leaven them. They're made clean because of Christ in me, not the other way around. So we can't be scared in the church about somebody who comes in with a little bit of sin in their life. By the way, who wants to cast the first stone? Let's keep it in perspective. 
We can't be scared and think, oh no, that person's going to come in. They're going to leaven the whole church. After all, isn't that what it says in chapter 5? A little leaven's going to leaven the whole lump. Oh, oh no. And then we run in fear or we run into punishment. Remember perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. So we just move into punishment because we've actually moved into fear thinking that this sinful thing has the ability to leaven our environment. But it doesn't. You are the leavening agents. The kingdom of the word of God is the leavening agent. We have nothing to fear. And I would submit to you, we want sinners to walk through the door, don't we? Like, don't we want people who are messed up to come through that door and to feel like, in some ways, in some ways to feel like they're at home? Like they've arrived to a family? Like, isn't that what we want? Or do we want just people who are all cleaned up somewhere out there and then only those people come? By the way, we call that transfer growth from other churches. And the last time I checked, transfer growth wasn't clean either. Because those people who are hopping all over the place usually got some junk, some critters in the closet. So who gets to come? Like We can't be afraid of it. Especially when you've been called to walk as Jesus walked. To put your hand right on it. We can't operate in fear and and thus move into a punishment model. The only sin that can leaven a body is that which is promoted, that which is celebrated, tolerated, or released by an unrepentant leader. We have none of those things, to my awareness, happening at Harvest Church. Amen? That wasn't a big enough amen. Obviously, then, we're not talking about general sin and its ability to live in the church. We're talking about something quite specific. Then we get on to verse 9, chapter 5. He says, I I wrote to you in my letter. What letter? This is 1 Corinthians. Ah, okay, just saying, just in case you missed it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or the idolaters. So now we've expanded it. We're not just talking about sexual immorality, but all sin. For for then you would have had to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. I want to draw special attention to the word that the Apostle Paul uses here. And it's the word so-called. Notice he says, to any of these so-called believers. Now, the Apostle Paul here is drawing a line in the sand for us. He's saying, listen, these people, I don't even, there's a massive implication here. Do you read into that? Like these so-called believers. You understand, these people think they're believers. The Apostle Paul is not questioning. Why is he questioning? He's he's suggesting that, that these are people who know the truth. These are people who know the truth. They've already been confronted, right? And they're choosing to partner with their sin in the face of what the church is saying. And in front of God saying, I've got a clean conscience before God. I know all of those things, but I'm good. I'm fine, brother. I can do whatever I want. And there's a sense of licentiousness. There's a sense in which the freedom or the grace of God has become a license to sin for these people. And the apostle Paul says they're so-called believers. He's suggesting that if you, have, if you are actually partnering with an ongoing lifestyle of sin in the face of the truth, there's re- reason to question whether you're even saved in the first place. 
Which is why I was saying, maybe we need a reality check. But he goes on, he's talking about how we would treat these people. I want to suggest to you, uh, if, if we have an unbeliever in our life, how do we treat them? What do we do with unbelievers? Do we, do we shun them? You know, do, we, you know, do we refuse to have you know, any contact whatsoever with unbelievers in our life? We, we don't. I, I don't think that what the Apostle Paul here is saying is to cut these people loose. You know, to, and of course, he's already talked about before we've turned such a one over to Satan so that he would maybe get saved someday through the destruction of his life. So we know that salvation is at aim. I don't think even for a second the Apostle Paul is here trying to suggest to us, cut those people off, like yeah, re- release them forever, never minister the gospel to them ever again. They're dead to you. I don't think that's what's being said here. In fact, have any of you ever had a best friend or somebody who was really close to you who began to make poor decisions? Or maybe they always did and you just kind of eventually woke up to that reality. Uh, Maybe they were gossips. And every time that you were around them, they wanted to tell you the scoop about Sister Susie, right? Maybe every time you got together, uh, they were prone to excessively drinking, you know, or, or, or maybe they, for whatever reason, have never gotten their mouth cleaned up. And you don't watch rated R movies and you don't really want to live in one. Right? And, and like, so what, what happens in those kinds of relationships? I, I, I would submit to you one of two things. Either one, you lower your guard and you compromise your own standards to remain friends with them. You know? Or two, you begin to create distance between yourself and them because you're not interested in having that influence in your life. Have you ever experienced that? I know many have. I've had many conversations with you. Right? I think mostly this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. I think mostly he's suggesting that somebody who is a believer, who they're a professing believer, they've been confronted with the truth of the gospel, with the truth of scriptures, but they're in the face of that continuing to choose sin just simply because they want to. This guy can't be your best friend anymore. They cannot have that level of influence in your life because it will chip away at you. It will chip away at your standards. How many of you know, like, this is actually the tactic of Hollywood? You know, many years ago, Misty and I were actually on the mission field, largely focused on Buddhists. We started realizing in Hollywood so many years ago, like, did you, did you see that? On that back shelf, there was a Buddha. How, did you, that was a, that was a prayer wheel, or oh, that person said... What, you know, and it was all Buddhist-related stuff. Then the next thing you know, after some years of being leavened by familiarity, this started becoming more blatant. You have Richard Gere, who becomes a Buddhist, and it becomes the, 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 you know, the fad thing to do in Hollywood is to go that direction. And the next thing you know, it's so normal that you can buy a Buddha to put in your garden from Walmart. Everybody's okay. It's just decoration. No, it's not just decoration, just so you know. By the way, I will take a rabbit trail on this one and suggest to you, do you understand that Buddhist priests are actually invoking demonic spirits to inhabit those demons or those idols before they ship them over to you? It's just, you know, garden decoration. It's not that big of a deal. Why do we think it's not that big of a deal? Because Hollywood has leavened us by familiarity. So many other things, it's doing the exact same thing. So, so why can't this person be your best friend anymore? Because they will leaven you by familiarity. Eventually, you'll be like, is it really that big of a deal? What do you think is happening in our school systems right now? Kids being raised up to think that all kinds of things are normal. 
what was called a mental illness like two weeks ago is, is now hailed as completely normal. What's been happening? They've been leavening your children through familiarity. Well, it's not that big a deal. And after a while, it just becomes fully accepted. See, this person can't be your best friend because eventually it will leaven you. Eventually you'll let your guard down. You have to bring separation. I think that's the Apostle Paul's biggest point here. But keeping in mind that we're talking about so-called believers... What you have to understand, the biggest distinction here is that we're not dealing with a a believer who's struggling with sin. All right, do we have any of those out there? How come nobody raised their hand? They just, no, I'm teasing you, I'm teasing you. Yeah, we're all one of those. You know, even the Apostle Paul said, I don't even want to propose to you even for a second that I've arrived. Well, if the Apostle Paul hasn't arrived, guess what? We probably haven't either. I, I, don't, I don't quite look like Jesus yet, though I'm on the journey, I guarantee you. We're not talking about general sin in the church. We're not talking about a, a believer who is in process, who's still trying to wrestle through and figure out you know, which side of the track they're even going to be on. The, you know, the, the, the kind of believer who says, man, I don't even know if this is sin or not. Remember my example? We're not talking about that kind of believer with general sin who's struggling and trying to sort it all out and is reading their Bible and they're trying to find answers or they're struggling and maybe the same believer who's even struggling and who's actually moved to a place of shame because they were used to a punishment culture. Hey, we're not even talking about that guy. We're talking about people who say that they're believers but who have completely shunned the truth, have partnered with sin. In the face of the truth of God, in the face of the truth that's being preached to them from the pulpit, in the face of the truth that's being preached to them through the words and the letters that the Apostle Paul has said, and in the face of of, uh, the face-to-face encounters that they have had, they have continued to partner with their sin. Guess what? You shouldn't be hanging out with that guy. That guy's not good for you. (laughs) We should have limited interaction. I want you to think about this as we, as we land this plane. I, w- I want you to consider that the New Testament admonishes us to be a people who would confess our sin to one another and then be healed. Can you do that in an environment where you're concerned that you're going to be punished the moment that you confess your sin? Then that model's not consistent with what the body of Christ was supposed to be and do. There's no way we can create a culture that's free enough to say, brother, I'm struggling, I got this issue, and I need you guys to join around me. If they thought for a second that what happened in 1 Corinthians 5, or at least in the traditional way that we've interpreted it, was going to happen to them, they'll just retreat into the corner and close the closet in shame, and they will never tell another living soul ever. And guess what? The enemy's got them now. They'll forever be in the closet of shame and despair, thinking they are the only ones dealing with this stuff. And they'll never have victory because they'll never have the freedom to confess to one another, to confess to family, to people who believe in them, who love them, who call the gold out of them, who see a purpose and a destiny and a hope and a future over them. They'll never be able to live like that. I'm guessing which one you would choose. What have we learned today? Paul came as a father. He came in gentleness, despite how he is often interpreted. We have to see that as we wrestle with the truths of 1 Corinthians 5. This isn't a leader who's aloof, who doesn't know what's going on, 
This is a guy who's laid down his life for the church. He's intimately invested. Number two, the boundaries aren't punishment. Boundaries aren't punishment. You know, sometimes natural consequences look like boundaries, but we have to think differently. Boundaries protect those things that we love. If you're going to continue to go around shooting sheep here, you don't get to stay here unless you repent and go back through the draw gate. It's not punishment. It's I love you too much to allow that, and that person by nature of partnering with sin is stepping out of the culture and the protection of the house. Those are natural consequences, not punishment. Does that make sense? It's just a different way of thinking. I believe it's the right way of thinking. Number three, sin that leavens is being promoted, it's being celebrated, tolerated, or released through a leader. We are not talking about general believers and general sin and the struggle that we all have in our process of sanctification. Number four, and lastly, this letter isn't addressing people who are working through their issues. Did I not just say that? But, but those who are fully settled in their sinful ways and disposition. Man, that's a big point for 1 Corinthians 5. This is why I think it's been so misinterpreted and, and so we're so scared of it. Because when you believe that it implicates you, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know. Well, when you realize it's not you it's talking about, but the guy who's actually rooted in and settled into a sin and is saying, no, I'm good. When you realize you're talking about that guy, it all starts to make a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? Father, we invite you to continue to reprogram the way that we think. Give us your eyes as we read your scripture and help all of the doctrine of man to fall off of us. We're asking that you would dissolve it. Uh, patterns of thinking, beliefs that we've held, even regarding your scripture, maybe for years. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, in any area that you want to touch to rewrite that script in us to give us fresh eyes to see what it is that you're actually saying. And we're asking Jesus that you would do such a work in us that we would be those people who are found like the Apostle Paul, coming in meekness, coming with the motivation of love, coming in gentleness with the heart to restore such a one and to walk with them as long as it takes to see them look like you, Jesus. Do that in us. We give you permission in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us or would like more information about our church or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.